Welcome to Bistec, the public procurement podcast. Today, Marta and I are discussing framework agreements and doing a PhD in public procurement law. Welcome to Bistec, the public procurement podcast. In this podcast, Dr. Willem Janssen and Dr. Marta Andorf discuss public procurement law issues, their love of food, and academic life. In each episode, Willem, Marta, and their guests search for answers to intriguing public procurement questions. This is Bistec. Let's dish up public procurement law. Hi, Marta. Hi. Uh-huh. I've realized we've started doing cold starts, as they call it, in podcasting yeah. world. Like we're not doing like long intros anymore. We just start talking like as if people are sitting to us next to us at the dinner table. Yeah, well, that's, that's the idea, I guess, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, thank you. That is indeed the idea. Um, so just a, just to shut you down from the beginning. <laughs> so much looking forward to Very this, supportive. Uh, this podcast episode. Thank you for letting me open so nicely. Um, so we're talking about two things, um, or at least we thought it would be fun to talk about two things. Our main dish for today is uh, framework agreements, which has been a topic of, of, of your research for a couple of years now. Um, and we thought it would be fun to kind of look at a couple of outstanding issues or some of the difficulties that arise uh, when it comes to, to framework agreements, but perhaps also give some basic info about what they are. Um, and as a dessert, doing a PhD in, in, in public procurement law, now both of us have done one, and we thought it would be uh, or at least interesting to kind of look back uh, at that PhD process, are there things that we wish we knew before uh, we started the uh, the PhD? So if you're okay with that main dish and dessert, then uh, let, let's jump right into uh, into framework agreements. Sure. <laughs> I feel like you're the most sarcastic you've been so far. Um, is this what framework agreements do to you? No, I think that right now it's a little bit, you know, like... The pressure is on. So oh. my natural reaction to when I'm stressed is I'm getting super sarcastic. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. I, I, being a Dutch native, I, I actually appreciate sarcasm. So I, I hope I can deal with that. But um, also happy to see that you bought yourself a new microphone. I did. I've been, I've been uh, informed on several occasions that that's what I should do. Willem, I'm listening. That's just my point here so, that I would actually, like to... Thank you. Okay, so you do listen every now and then. That's not bad. I do. Um, you just don't agree all the time. That's that the difference. Yeah, you listen well, and I, then you don't agree. I guess this is the point of this friendship and collaboration, right? What makes it fun? We're not always agreeing. Oh, even though I do find that so far in a lot of episodes we have agreed, but I'm sure we'll get to a stage where, where we'll start disagreeing a bit more. But when we talk about framework agreements, right? Maybe you could just um, ease us into the topic. Say, if you're not familiar with it, what what um, what are they, and how are they regulated? Sure. So, framework agreements um, are quite interesting technique because it is is a procurement technique that um, some of the member states are using it quite extensively, and in some other ones, they are pretty much absent. Right, so um, the Scandinavian countries, Sweden, Finland, Norway, Denmark, they, they actually use it very often. The same with sort of Iceland, that's throwing it a little bit more north. Um, so framework agreements are regulated, of course, in the directive in Article 33 
And um, if we would want to look at the definition and specifically guides us towards the fact that they are an agreement between one or more contracting authorities and one or more economic operators. So you can have more than one on both of the sides. And the purpose of um, framework agreement is to establish the terms governing contracts to be awarded during given period. Um, what is interesting here is that we can think about framework agreements a little bit as umbrella agreement. So you laying ground um, of your collaboration for years to come. You're establishing a certain basic terms and conditions of that collaboration. And what is particularly interesting, and I just would want to highlight it right now because we will come back to this a little bit later in our conversation when we'll talk about some of the new case law, the definition of framework agreements that is in the directive points out that in particular with regards to price and where appropriate, the quantity investigated should also be established, right? So it, this wording of in particular and where appropriate suggests that there are circumstances in which you don't have to do that, which what we right now know from the newest case law is a little bit standing under question mark, so to speak. You're really front-loading this episode, right? It's yeah. like you keep referring to a case, but you don't mention which case no. it is. I just said, please stay tuned. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, uh, what, what I was wondering, is, is there a way that you could explain the, um, the differences in use in the member states? Does it have anything to do with how centralized states are, or is it just pure coincidence that, say, the Nordics use them so much? Mm -hmm. I think for sure it has something to do with um, if you have centralized or decentralized um, procurement system. But I think it's also a little bit connected with, you know, traditions. I think um, historical traditions of doing procurement. Um, one of the member states that does not use them is Poland. And at some point when I was talking with Polish contracting authorities and Polish lawyers, they were just saying that um, they see way too many uncertainties around framework agreements. And from this general standpoint that, you know, public procurement is quite risk averse, they're quite worrying about that. But I, at the same time, came across several contracts, public contracts that are at conditional contracts, which actually in some ways um, fulfill. Um, that sounds very similar. Yes, least, fulfill yeah. the sort of terms and conditions or how characteristics of framework agreement, I would say, because also when we're talking about framework agreements, it's quite a wide spectrum of different type of agreements from, you know, super voluntary in pretty much you as a contracting authority are not obliged to anything and your suppliers are not really obliged to provide you with anything through the spectrum of other end in which you are obliged to, as a contracting authority to buy at least some minimum quantities. And the same way your suppliers are obliged to provide them whenever asked. And in the most extreme versions, um, the way how some of those um, framework agreements can be written, they can actually fulfill um, definition at the same time of public contract, which can be at that moment, you know, a really confusing because then what is the difference if, if, if the framework agreement is a public contract, do you still then apply uh, the directive for awarding of the subcontracts, et cetera, et cetera. But that just to point out that it's not really, you know, one size fits all. They have a very different variation of them. 
Yeah. Yeah. Now I think also if I look at the Dutch context, I think it's really up to the contracting authority to themselves to decide, do they want to set up a framework agreement? Sometimes it makes a lot of sense for bulk goods or something. Um, but we don't really have that obligatory system that you might have in other member states. So when I first heard about it, I was fascinated that like mm. this link with, with centralizing procurement and basically having framework agreements for pretty much, I'm exaggerating a bit, but pretty much everything. And you just tag along on the big bulk buying, which in terms of uh, scaling um, uh, purchasing makes a lot of sense. Um, what do, so just to, to go a bit further into this, what do you think about the, the balance between like scaling in, in, within framework agreements and access for, for small and medium-sized entities? Oh, yeah, you know, this is, this is, this is a huge point of, of contingency here, right? Because on the one hand side, I think, um, so, so just to sort of um, contextualize it a little bit and link it to what you just mentioned earlier, I think that there is for sure a huge amount of discretion on contracting authorities to decide how they conduct their procurements, do they do frameworks or not. But I think also with popularization, with um, centralized, centralized procurement, or even joint procurements and cross-border joint procurements, et cetera, et cetera, when you're kind of going more into this bigger, better. Um, in Denmark, when we have some of the central purchasing bodies, they you know, predominantly conduct framework agreements, right? So it's also to showcase the different institution, some of the joint purchasing consortia in the UK, they also predominantly do framework agreements. So there is a spectrum again. Um, now to come back to your question, um, on the one hand side, there is a, a lot of uh, positive elements to support aggregation of procurement, centralization of procurement, you know, bigger discounts, access to, to you know, wider sort of market, etc., etc. Um, but at the same time, there is this huge issue of competition law, first of all, because um, this becomes then a bit, if you have a market and you've got very few, uh, then competition law, dominant position issues and, you know, um, anti-competitive agreements, bid rigging and all these things comes to place very quickly. Uh, and then, of course, something that we are particularly or should be particularly careful um, ensuring that you're supporting small and medium enterprises because that is predominantly our market within EU. You can, of course, there is uh, this opportunities of dividing contracts into lots on uh, performing or, or promoting um, small and medium enterprises to bid in form of consortia. Of course, getting the small and medium enterprises as subcontractors. So there are several options, but you need to be very careful because even if you divide your frameworks into many lots, but the way that you allow, um, you won't point any restriction on how many lots you can bid, then ultimately you can find yourself in the same spot that the biggest um, bidder, that the biggest supplier just won all lots. And then then it's sort of like, you know, taking, it's like going back to this greening, greenwashing conversation that we had in the last episode. You're sort of ticking your box saying, yeah, yeah, I tried to, uh, but it's a bit pointless. Yeah, still the biggest contractor wins and actually all of the small entities are like standing on the sideline with tears, with tears in their eyes. Yeah. Um, uh, so let's let's have a look at some of the more uh, legal aspects of, of, of um, framework agreements. Um, we thought it would be good to talk about who can use them and then particularly delve into the issue of non-signatories. So people that actually haven't signed up literally to the tender, 
or the art perhaps mentioned in it or tag on later. Uh, volumes is a big, um, and, and the value is, is a big topic. And this is what you spoke about. It, I'm too scared to mention the case now because you didn't <laughs> Don't mention do that it, so. yet. Don't do exactly. that yet. <laughs> um, and um, finally, uh, what are the options to change a party to the framework agreement? Um, let, let's start off with, with the first one. Um, what are your thoughts on, or at least, and I think we'll hear what case you've been talking about, uh, who can use that so such a framework agreement and, and what's the issue actually? What are we talking about when there is an issue of non-signatory? Sure. So to start us off, when we're talking about who can use, uh, wh why it is even important to discuss who can use um, framework agreements, um, it strives from the fact that framework agreements are closed set up, meaning that you're establishing a framework agreement for X amount of years, you're allowed to do that up until to four years, unless there are justified reasons uh, for you to extend that time. And then during that time, you are not allowed to introduce new members of framework agreements to it. It's sort of freezed, and the reason why it's kind of freezed and also why it is limited, because it limits the access uh, of new companies, right? So issue of competition again. But the question for some time has been, how about the contracting authorities side? So up here, you know, you, up here you bringing in, more, can you bring more contracting authorities to use it? And that that conversation about all these elements actually several several years old now because the question was, can you just establish a framework agreement and say, oh, all municipalities in my region are going to use it or actually all contracting authorities are going to use it, right? And we had uh, guidelines and note from a commission on this and we had also some clarification within within um, the directive and residual 60 actually points out that contracting authority may be individual individually named or they may be named identified by recognizable class of contracting authorities such as let's say central governmental departments local authorities in region so that, X and that, y. that seems to provide some flexibility right the, that these practices of mentioning all municipalities so in the Netherlands there would be over 350 you yes. just list them all and is it then a happy happy party or would you say there's still limitations to that? Well, I think that you need to have a principle of transparency here, um, sort of, so to speak, in mind. So you can um, clarify or you can establish the group of contracting authorities by class, but it needs to be done in a way that they are um, immediately identifiable. So there needs to be, let's say, list somewhere. Or you very clearly can have an understanding of what is the um, geographical um, coverage of that framework agreement, right? And that is when it comes to the parties, and then the issue of of the non-signatories. And now, right now, we should have you know like a drum roll or something where we finally when we get when we get a case. bit better together at podcasting, we can do all these gimmicks in between, right? Yeah. We'll just keep adding these soundboards that people will be annoyed by what we think are really funny. But yeah, yeah drum you roll. Just, you just should have next to you know some sort of instrument and just do it like cling. <laughs> Talking about having fun doing podcasts, right? But the case that we're talking about is a case, uh, Autoritata. Um, the numbering of it is 216 by uh, 17. And that case um, is a, I would say it's a fast, this type of big case on framework agreements. And, and it brought some 
elements to discussion and it, and it stirred, the, stirred the pot a little bit. Um, in context of non-signatories, um, what the issue up here was that um, the we, we have a framework agreement in which uh, included was this extension clause. And the extension clause was predicting the possibility of extending the agreement to several other regional health authorities that they were identified in that clause, um, including one uh, specific, right? And then later on, that one specific wanted to actually use the framework agreement. And the question ultimately that went amongst others to European Court of Justice was whether that was possible. Uh, and up here, the Court of Justice said pretty much that, yes, it is okay, as long as they are identified, as long as the, the transparency is here uh, and short. Um, so um, that has been, um, I think, this type of clarification when it comes to issues of non-signatories. So that leaves, so where does that leave us in the end? Because, so these practices of listing, because it's... It, Okay. In, in the end, I think if you look at it from a transparency point of view, right? Uh, mm -hmm. In the end, the test that we as public procurement lawyers need to fulfill is, is what, what framework agreement are you putting in the market? Would it have been different? Um, would, would it have attracted a different group of, of contractors if, say, the listing on that uh, was different? But particularly when we, and this is, I think I'm tapping into the next topic, when we talk about the value and the volume Mm -hmm. um, how does that relate? Because if you list, so if I would reflect on Dutch practice, if I would list all over 350 municipalities, that raises a certain expectation in terms of volume. But if you don't know who's actually going to use the agreement, I feel like there's a certain amount of uncertainty created there. For sure. But, you know, even without touching the uh, issue of volume um, or quantity, there's also this issue, I think, of geographical coverage. So, you know, I, I, I worked on issues of transparency within, within framework agreements for several years. And one of the issues up here is um, that what the directive does not explicitly cover is actually the indication of whether the contracting authorities that are identified in the framework agreements actually intend to use them. Mm. And that also then ultimately impacts some elements, particularly if you don't have any minimum requirements of in, in any minimum purchase, right? So in other words, um, you have a quite broad spectrum geographically covering a country. And then you have some small and medium enterprise bidding and they are only interested in very south part because that's where they are established. That's where they can provide, let's say, services, right? They will not bid on frameworks which in geographical scope are in other parts of the country because by price, by costs, it, it just wouldn't be beneficial for them, right? So hold this part about also um, it really being clear within frameworks that the problem very much relies about it's a bit guessing game. And, and that's when, when, when it becomes a little bit problematic. And I think that, that from, from, from that element, it also um, comes to this conversation about the values and the quantities elements that authority also um, sort of brings up front uh, for us to, to, to right now um, discuss. Yeah, because perhaps if we're very clear about values and volumes, it doesn't matter who's listed. Or is that too simply said? Because if, if you're very clear about an absolute maximum and you're saying this is what it's going to be worth, who cares then who signs up? 
Well, I would say that you still, to a certain extent, care from a perspective of supplier. But for sure, but I think that also, you know, to supplement your question even more, why you didn't need framework agreements, why you just wouldn't do then public contracts. Yeah. You know, and I think that this is um, as, a, as a consequence of Autorita. Um, when I spoke with many of practitioners here in Denmark, um, and also following the um, Danish Competition Authority note on this, um, which pretty much said, um, and, and okay, I'm not going to say, I'm just going to say that in a second because I would jump, I love jumping topics. I'm very sorry to our listeners for that. Um, <laughs> I'll keep you in check. Keep me in check on Stick this. Stick to yes. the topic. Stick to the... Yeah, but uh, the, the question has been, or the sort of criticism, I think, broadly in Scandinavia has been, well, you're really tying um, the strings really tight on, on any type of flexibility that we need in framework agreements. The whole idea of framework agreement is to have some level of flexibility. Because right now the element um, is, 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 is uh, quite narrowed down, right? Because the idea right now is, okay, you need to point out the absolute maximum and what, where, where absolute bomb explodes in Denmark was this specific provision within the case that pointed out that when the limits, and then once the limit has been reached, the agreement will no longer have any effect. Yeah, which Now is a big one, a, right? Yeah. Now know, there should be a bomb down. Explosion, yeah. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Because the question up here very quickly was, and, and that also is a, a part of this um, preliminary note from the competition authority in Denmark, was well, when the maximum is reached, it is impossible to further use the framework agreement, right? So, of course, the question was, because the practice, in, and I think that it's Denmark in that sense is not um, alone, but the practice has been, well, you, you provide estimation in the, in the uh, contract notice, but there is no really a consequences as such on how, how exactly precise that estimation was. If there was a little bit above, well, a little bit below, like, you know, when right now a little bit the question is, well, is that meaning that all the contracts that suddenly already right now have been awarded, are they ineffective? What, what's happening? Are they direct awards? Um, so that from, from the lawyers um, is, is uh, quite a cake now. Yeah, I can. I can. I, deal with. I, I understand that um, it went off like a massive bombshell in the Nordics. On the other hand, it's how was how was it, it, uh, yeah. It makes sense to me, and this is where I've I've, I've struggled mm -hmm. a bit because if you don't provide an absolute maximum, right, and you just look at that as an as an estimate, right, and you just say, well, this is what yeah. we're probably going to do. How can you guarantee that the interested parties that sign up for the tender? So, I mean, from what I've heard from practice in the Nordics, yeah. it, it's not like they're going over, uh, these framework agreements don't go over by 10,000 euros, right? It, it's a mm. massive amount that sometimes is, it, it supersedes because they're used for years on end. And I'm sure that works, but like, how do you then guarantee that those initial parties that didn't sign up for the framework agreement still... Um, get to benefit from that uh, in a way that they should be allowed to do under principles of transparency and equality. Oh, absolutely. I agree with you. But I think that at the same time, there's a little bit, so there's two, two, two lines of arguments here or two points that I think are, are worth considering. One of it is, um, well, sometimes you just abuse the system and, and you shouldn't be allowed to do that. And I don't think that there is any doubt on either of our sides. 
in no, regards for sure. to this. But at the same time, a very practical element that one of one of um, colleagues pointed out to me is um, if you imagine that you have a huge framework agreement um, and um, is um, so that the call-offs, the public contracts are being done at the same time in several contracting authorities and it almost happens simultaneously sometimes because you're ordering things online and so on and so forth. It's just a very practical element that you can jump over. And then the question of that is, well, which you then allow still to stay or you suddenly say, oh, no, those, those are not anymore in place. Um, of course, you could um, systematically somehow you would need to, I guess particularly if it's orders on, on online and so on and so forth, kind of do the system when, when you reach that, you cannot order anymore. But that's something, of course, to, that um, needs, to, needs, to, needs to be uh, much more carefully looked at. The question that um, also I think still there is, is um, right now, um, do you always need to point out both quantity and value? Or pointing out just value is enough. And if I'm not mistaken, this is actually one of the um, preliminary questions right now um, that has been sent by by Denmark to the to the court to try to uh, get an answer on that. Um, that one, and then a second, and also, do we only look at the general value of the whole framework, or do you also need to get from your users? So your contracting authorities, do they all need to provide you with an absolute max that they're going to buy of you? And that also can uh, impact, you know, the applicability of those frameworks, right? How precise you need to be. That you need to oblige yourself to minimum? Do you need to oblige yourself to maximum? And uh, just not to go on absolute rant, one more thing that um, uh, came to my mind and ties to one of your comments, a very another practical issue, and as a practical, I think, issue that has a lot to do with transparency, but um, also impacts these questions of volumes, is that what happened in the UK, so um, several years ago when I was doing a comparative study between Denmark and the UK and how they apply framework agreements, how they use it. One of the big challenges there have been that you would have established framework agreements that on the one hand side, they will overlap in the scope. And at the same time, you will have a contracting authorities that will be signed on to more than one framework agreements for the same thing. And they won't even know about it. So they would not be consulted ahead of time. So that in itself provides you, you know, a bit, um, blurred lines of all this situation right because it's obviously the magic they yeah. won't they won't be buying their volumes from all these framework agreements they would just buy from one of them so 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 yeah that's it's an interesting uh point that you raise and i think it links up nicely with um one element that i th- think could be we're talking about a lot about bombs today, but like, let's not get too carried away. But this is a little <laughs> bit of a bomb that could underlie framework agreements even more. And this came up in a, in a research that I did recently with um, uh, Eric Olsen about uh, the Irgita case. And so I, I think we will, there's plenty of space to discuss how insanely interesting that case is from like a public, public cooperation uh, perspective. 
I'm a still a sucker for that topic. I never thought I would say that after finishing my PhD on the topic. We will definitely do episode on that. We're gonna, and then you're gonna hear me get all fired up and have a very serious tone of voice and be super sarcastic, like <laughs> yeah. someone else is being at the moment. Um, but um, there was one thing that actually we we were thinking of is um, when we read this case and the Agita case came out on third of October two thousand nineteen, and it's C two eight five slash eighteen. Um, uh, it's a bit of a complicated case, but uh, to, to boil it down in, in, in very short uh, terms, there's two awards of contracts. One goes to a normal economic operator, Irgita, and the other one is awarded by the same municipality for the same substance, maintenance of parks, to an in-house entity that fulfills the requirements of, of Article, Article 12 of the directive. So there's overlap between the two. Uh, now, this is where the answer to the, to the question that uh, uh, Irgita raises uh, in relation to framework agreements could lie. But basically, what, what happens is, is the court then says, okay, because it's asked to, to, to assess the validity of that second award to that in-house entity, uh, because it overlapped in time and substance. So there were two contracts at the same time that were awarded. And basically, Irgita, who got the first contract, was like, well... Uh, what's happening to my volume, right? Uh, you you closed an agreement with me, so and now it seems to all be going to this in-house entity, um, even though my contract hasn't finished yet. So then what the court says, mm. and this is where we end up with maybe a minimum requirement instead of what the, the, the antitrust case, the co-op service case that you mentioned already did about the maximum, is do we have a minimum requirement? Is because basically the court then goes in, in, in paragraph 63 is, whether it had to be established that the contracting authority failed to define its requirements sufficiently clear, and it's basically telling the referring court to assess this. So uh, was the contracting authority clear enough in its requirements? In particular, by not guaranteeing the provision of a minimum volume of services to the party to whom that contract was awarded. Mm. So the court basically says to the, to the Lithuanian uh, referring court, uh, you should probably check if there was if the contracting authority should have not posed a minimum volume, right? So now, what's difficult then is when we talked about flexibility. Uh, this makes an, a framework agreement completely inflexible because you would need to I guarantee think the that parties. Yeah, I think practitioners here, you know, just pulling their hair out of their head. In this regard, That's good that right, they yeah? start doing that as well because it's sometimes I feel like we are the only ones that do that <laughs> as academics and I actually I'm losing quite a bit already. <laughs> you luckily you compensate, but um, I think that happens in old age. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I absolutely agree with you because then do we then have minimum and maximum? And like I'm saying, I think that that, that we need to consider the whole idea why we want to have framework agreements in the first place. And that's where we come into this notion of, you know, um, how close uh, all these requirements and to what extent these requirements make those framework agreements like conditional right now looking in the, you know, private contract law, right. As a uh, conditional private, uh, sorry, conditional um, contract, Meaning, if A happens, then this will happen, right? Like, it, you have an obligation that will occur, mine to buy and yours to provide, when specific situations occur. And I think that the idea of framework agreement has been 
more uh, for it to be more flexible tool now um that flexibility i think needs to be protected somehow and ensured but at the same time i think that uh, where I may not make any uh, many friends listening uh, practitioners to this, I do think that there is a certain requirement um, for those framework agreements to be more well researched, well communicated to the uh, to the suppliers and to the users. I don't think, for example, that you should be establishing a framework agreement as a central purchasing body or any other in the name of other contracting authorities without really consulting with them, without informing them that they will be on it and without, you know, really clarifying what this, what, what the volumes, interest of the volumes from your user is because it shouldn't be, you know, too abstract because it doesn't have then really a connection to reality. So there is about striking certain balance. And so I understand where court was coming from in this regard. So we're balancing between flexibility and like a consistent interpretation of all these well, legal these certainty, right? In certain yeah. way, it's a legal certainty. You're buying this amount. And then if something is else, you need to procure it again. Uh, you know, in principle, it, it is fairly straightforward. Yeah, totally. No, I think we're on the same page. And I think it would be interesting to see what happens perhaps with these implications of a Gita, but definitely also with the Danish uh, reference and what the court will do. Um, we still have one final thing that I promised everyone. Uh, and perhaps you can give a brief, uh, slightly quick uh, answer or, or insights into that is the change of party. So what happens if uh, during the course of a framework agreement, which can be four to, well, if you're in the utilities, it's eight, but like let's say four years, unless other the, these exceptional circumstances apply, like you mentioned, but um, what happens there? Well, the, the, it is fairly straightforward. I think just to round it up, a couple elements. Up here, Article 72 of the directive applies. So the um, article on contract modification in its wording also refers to framework agreements. So the reasons that are provided, the basis, the requirements uh, for you to be allowed to change the um, supplier, the contractor, will be equally applicable here, right? So you can change the member of framework agreement um, if that at the same time is not followed by, by other uh, material modification. Uh, and there are also lists of reasons that that can be due to uh, which one of them would be bankruptcy or restructurization, merger, etc. The interesting point that I won't dive into due to the time limitations that we have, but I just would want to point out is that in regards to this Autorita case and you know this, this discussion that we have in what if your framework actually ex exceeds the limit and you already awarded a contract or can, can you do something about it? An interesting question up here is can you use other um, elements of Article 72? So for example, for the additional modification for the additional supplies, right? Yep. Would that be allowed for you to use, particularly in context um, of, uh, I would say, IT procurements, what you could um, maybe potentially argue uh, that it is impossible to change the supplier, you know, some sort of technical difficulties, etc. Would would that be possibility uh, here, or unforeseeable circumstances, etc.? So, so can you use other forms to 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 help you out here, right? Shall we leave it at uh, this for for framework agreements? 
Um, I think so. We've done with a, bit a little of, the hope for the next time, right? <laughs> I mean, there's, there's there's always space to talk, to talk more. That's what's great. Uh, we've delved into what framework agreements are, issue of non-signatories. We've had a bit of a longer chat about values and volumes. What are the implications of of, of the uh, uh, the antitrust group case? And basically, what does Egita mean? Um, and it was great to just grably, quickly grab your final thoughts on the change of party. But if you'll agree, then let's move on to the dessert for today. Yeah, let's, um, let's, let's have some fun time though. <laughs> this is where we'll actually, we'll try, but probably won't happen this, this episode, but you suggested to do a bit of a cling, right? Or to do an, yeah, a, we should a, a have dra- like a, some type of gimmick, but we'll see if we can yeah, work on that later on. Some sort um, of champagne bottle opening or something. Like, <laughs> Uh, what is that going to do to our comments? We could actually open a bottle of champagne every time we go in here. That's totally fine by me. Uh, I think we just that we would have a great time. I th- don't think we should tell anyone at what time we're recording these podcast no. episodes, though. We're Even always though, recording it Saturday evening. Saturday. <laughs> it's a bit sad to only record podcasts on Saturday evening. Um, this says a lot about the amount of friends and the relationships that we have, but let's move on from there. Um, we've got, uh, we said we'd say yeah. something about PhD in procurement. Um, now, uh, you did uh, your PhD uh, like abroad from your perspective, right? So it was in a different country. I did it at, um, at Utrecht uh, and did a little stint in, in, in Washington during it. But uh, uh, what would be, say, two or three lessons? Because I think. Uh, we talked about it last and we talked about the importance of mentors, right? So that's at least one is go look for those. But what would be three things perhaps that would be useful for people considering a PhD or that when they're already doing it, but what would be three things that you wish you knew before you started a PhD in procurement law? Yeah, um, I think that I think that this is kind of interesting because uh, hopefully if we have any people that are considering doing a PhD, listen to this they can get perspective and it will be interesting if our advices or lessons learned are anyhow similar because as you mentioned, we have quite different profiles from a perspective that I left home and I went to another country to to do my PhD and then part of that PhD also was split with me doing a work um, in Australia, doing comparative research. So I've been quite strongly international throughout, I would say, my academic career and specifically PhD. Um, why you can give us a little bit more context of um, doing that in your home jurisdiction. When it comes to those lessons learned, and I would try to con- quite reflect this international element, um, I would say... Some lessons learned, and that is a little bit controversial, but on my own personal experience, I know that we are being always put in our head very strongly that your research is the most important element, and that is also what will potentially get you a job later on. I mean, if that's a postdoc, assistant, etc. But what I found being absolutely pivotal, fundamental, crucial in my career is actually network building network, getting your name out there, getting your face out there, making new connections, because I think that way you also learn, but that way also you actually get a lot of opportunities. My first publication were all connected with the fact that I went to the right conference at the right time. I met someone that was working on something interesting and they invited me to join 
to write a chapter for a book. That's how I get my first publication. Um, so I would say that, yeah, network, network, network. Extremely network. And important. I think also what's just to add to that, because um, also the, the public procurement law community, particularly the one that we're in heavily involved in is, is I would say, predominantly European, right? Of course, there's links yeah. to the US and, and, and I don't know, can we call the UK European still? Yeah, probably. I think so. We uh, also have some South African colleagues that exactly. are very uh, present. But yeah, but, it is but, predominantly European. Europe. And, but it's, what I'd like to add is it's a small community, but it's a community of like generally very well-willing people. That's how really I've experienced nice this. Yeah. It's really nice people. <laughs> I mean, not all. Shout of them. out to no. all our network. <laughs> Most of them. No, kidding. No, they're actually that's, that surprised me because it can feel like a big step. But I fully like your first thing: network, network, community, community. Totally a good one. So what would be yours? Let's just bounce back and forth. Um, I, I actually what I because you thought of this idea, right? Um, yeah. What I thought was is, is are there specific things that are like super public procurement? like related or is it just doing a PhD? And the things that came to my mind was um, mostly more general, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what I've found is, and this is uh, lessons generally come from your own mistakes, right? That's what of has course, an that's, impact. That's where you learn the most, right? Um, so what I found is I think I was stuck too long in the thinking and reading phase of my PhD, oh, yeah. particularly in the first year or first one and a half years. I just... I found myself feeling like I needed to think a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what I've learned learned from that is that's not very helpful. I mean, it's helpful to a certain extent to do that every now and then, but you just also need to get stuff written down. Um, and basically, sometimes it's easy to forget that us as legal scholars, we don't have a lab coat, right? We just our writing is our experiment. And then, and then you start flipping back and forth and then your conclusions follow. So my main lesson would be is just start writing, writing, writing. If I can follow on your like mm-hmm. network, 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 yeah. writing, writing, writing. Now yeah, back to you. I would, I would actually add to, to the points that you made. I think you see, this is why I like it because we kind of bounce from, from each other. When it comes to things specifically procurement related, doing procurement PhD, I think um, what could be kind of particular and, and it's a little bit connected with this network network, there might be a possibility that you are alone or only yourself and your PhD supervisor. Procurement still, you know, in many places, it's not really a big thing. It's not like you, um, you're right, you're, uh, William, you're in a center. So this is very privileged, right? We got center in Nottingham and then we got a couple other centers right now. My center and sort of whole Copenhagen procurement-based sort of group. So there are several of us, but in general, you, it, probably you're you're quite lonely. And and getting your tribe, getting that network going to get some thoughts and shares, and people getting excited by the same things that you get excited. I think that that kind of it's a relief very often. Yeah, to kind yeah, of feel like oh my god, there's there's other people, there's other people that like what I what I'm doing, <laughs> yeah. uh, and they don't just look at it as like is that competition law, or is yeah. it construction law, or private law, or, or administration law? Administri- uh, yeah, administrative. Sorry. So um, yeah, that's definitely yeah. Uh, definitely the case. What else did you have? And then I was thinking, you said writing, writing. Um, so that is also supportive to that. I think, and that's something still that I'm right now investing a lot of time. And I hope I did it at the very beginning of my career is focusing more on process. 
So we very much at the PhD level um, focus on the outcome, you know, the outcome of this monograph, everything about that, but invest in establishing good pro, uh, group process of how you're working, you know, and sure, are you practicing, you know, maybe for you it will work every day working 500 words or just working, writing three and a half thousand per week, if that is in one set or whatever, how you make sure that you read often and how you get it, how you get your process going. So you're not feeling a uh, falling later on when you have more um, task into these pockets, you know, that you're panicking because you don't have time to research, you've got tons of teaching, sort of yep. developing a good habits, I would say, from quite early on, because you have, I think, also a little bit more time during your PhD to figure that out, and it will really benefit you in years to come. If I can tag on to that, because we do a lot of tagging on to each other's things. If we're talking about yeah. habits, one thing that I wrote down, and this will be my last one, and then maybe you can do one last one, and then we'll round up the whole uh, episode, um, is mm-hmm. to get into the habit to celebrate milestones. And this is something that I was terribly terrible at, right? So basically what I did is I looked at a PhD, that's a four-year thing, and there's only a celebration at the end. And that's basically... Uh, but that's very unmotivating, right? Because you continuously feel like you're in this massive void and thinking, okay, I've got to contribute to something that I don't really know where it's going. So I'm just going to uh, sometimes feel miserable in the process, right? I'm generally quite a happy camper, but Mm. at times I felt like PhD was pretty (laughs) shitty, right? Um, But so what I've learned now is to really take your time. time fill that. (laughs) Exactly. I've learned to just take your time and I've started calling them champagne moments. Um, where I've just yeah. got a bottle of champagne ready for the for every publication that comes out, or every time I feel like, hey, I, maybe I actually positively impacted a student, or um, maybe that project that I did was great, or perhaps we could pop a bottle of champagne when we launch the podcast. All this type of stuff. Sure, it's, it's something that I've I consciously do now, and it's because we don't really work in massive. We're not agile, right? In in academia, we don't do three-week sprints where you feel like, oh, this client's happy now. Project closure, next one, right? So, celebrate those those milestones. I think that's the one thing. And the second thing in in that sort of theme is also, you know, uh, we usually don't get much carrots in our professional life in PhD over that those three years or five years, you know, whatever the timeline is. It's not like often you will get a tap on your shoulder and saying, good job. So you need to figure out, I think also as a part of your process, how to ensure that. So, you know, if you make it the beginning, break it down, break the whole process to, you know, a weekly tasks to do. And if you fulfill it, if you write, you know, your three pages or whatever that is, if you read that case, et cetera, et cetera, just, just make sure that that gives you a satisfaction that you're going somewhere. And at the same time, I would say that if I were to leave all prospective PhDs or students doing their PhDs with one message is, uh, we all one way or another felt really lonely, felt really defeated and felt like we wrote something that absolutely does not have any value. At least I really strongly believe that maybe in different words, but majority of people will word it that way. It's a, it's a, it's a lonely, it's a difficult task. And also one of the conclusions that my thesis supervisor gave me, which I really appreciate. And I always share with any fellow PhD colleagues that I have at the faculties your PhD should not be your best work. 
because your PhD is an entry point work, right? For academic career, you are, of course, to reach a good quality level, but you should be progressing and further developing. So don't approach it as, you know, the best thing under the earth that it needs to be an absolute. Sad um, as it is, you're probably not going to win the Nobel Prize. I don't know if I'm, I'm shattering someone's dreams, but probably <laughs> not. I'm going to round up. Um, network, network, network. Right, right, right. Look for champagne and carrots. Um, and it's perhaps yeah. normal, even though it's sad to sometimes feel, feel lonely, but don't put too much pressure on yourself because it's not going to be your best work. And perhaps it is, but if it isn't, that's not the issue. You're just entering academia. Is that a good sum up of our brief discussions on this topic? I think so. Positive. Stay positive. (laughs) Exactly. And find your hobbies, right? That's find your friends. Um, uh, I think um, we've discussed quite a bit. We've looked at framework agreements. We've looked at uh, doing a PhD in public procurement law, and we tried to at least share some of our thoughts. And I think we uh, we should leave it at that. Um, I don't know when we'll speak again, but uh, hopefully soon. Um, And this was Bistec, the Public Procurement Podcast. This was Bistec, the Public Procurement Podcast. Do you want to contribute to today's discussion? Then share your thoughts on LinkedIn or Twitter. Do you have an idea for a future episode? Write to us at www.bistecpodcast.com. 